Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is sourcing strategy, effective versus efficient with my friend, Ron Crabtree. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Joe. So I've known Ron for a number of years. He's a great guy. I did actually, I worked for his consulting company, MetaOps. I did some great projects we can't talk about, but it was along the lines of logistics and supply chain. He's got lots of good projects. We'll talk about that later. But before we do all that, Ron, why don't you introduce yourself and your company? I'm Ron Crabtree, and really a pleasure to join you here, Joe. And so I'm the CEO and founder of MetaOps Incorporated in Michigan. And I started the company 19 years ago after a career mostly in the automotive supply chain and materials management operations, sourcing and procurement and the like. And uh, had a couple of tours of duty with Grant Thornton and their, ran their Oracle practice in Detroit for a period of time and later worked for the world's largest lean manufacturing consulting company, working with a lot of ex-Toyota people. And how do you integrate all those lean best practices and the entire aspect of end-to-end supply chain sourcing and supply management? So happy to share that and having had the opportunity over the last 19 years to work with more than 100 different companies grappling with these kinds of problems. Right. I always say Ron's got his finger on the pulse of the industry and there's always interesting projects coming from Ron. <laughs> you know, he's just sending me something or we talk about something, but great guy to know. And this is a great topic too. Ron and I were talking last week and he had said, that he had some conversations with peers and also attended some conferences, virtual, of course. <laughs> and we got to talk about this topic. So one last thing before we get into this, Ron, I would like you, just so people have some context, what kind of companies you typically serve over there at MetaOps? Well, that's a great question. There's three different groupings to the customers we work with. One would be corporates, publicly traded, privately owned, all the way up to you know Coca-Cola-sized. And then the next big chunk for us are private equity-owned organizations. They usually have a pretty short attention span and need to get stuff done quick. So our model of support is very attractive. And we've partnered with more than 30 different really cool organizations that do management consulting and supply chain, turnaround performance, everything from getting grants for uh, things you're trying to fund in your local state government, et cetera, et cetera. So we kind of work our way across that continuum. Right. I wanted to touch on that because, again, Ron does really have his finger on the pulse of this stuff. And so when we talk about sourcing strategy and supply chain, it's what he's doing all the time, what his team's always doing. So, Ron, today's topic is, again, sourcing strategy, effective versus efficient. So a lot of times, and this is when we were prepping, I said this kind of a pet peeve of mine when I hear people say, use effective and efficient kind of interchangeably because they are different things. So why don't you touch on that first? What is effective versus what is efficient? Well, effective supply chains probably be characterized to a great extent. If we think about it, the U.S. military and how our government sources to support warfighters, they put a ton of emphasis on the effectiveness of supply chain. Why? Not supporting our warfighters isn't one of the choices. Right. So to have a brittle supply chain that breaks and suddenly we can't provide what we need to maintain our national security isn't one of the choices. Yeah. And so when you say effective, we're not talking about use of resources. We're talking about ability to get desired results. So if it comes to somebody's life or an emission, you say, look, I don't want to lose a life. If I lose a tank, 
it's a lot of money and it's being very inefficient with taxpayer money. But we'd rather lose a tank than lose a guy. If I get in the mindset of I can't lose anyone, or Brian, when we were talking earlier, you said when the planes are landing at your local airport, they have to be very effective. I don't care if they're efficient. <laughs> I'd like them to be efficient, but more importantly, I want those planes to get the desired results, which is landing on the ground. And the other side of it, efficiency, that's how much resources you use to get those desired results. So that is people, money, energy, whatever I had to expend. So they're kind of, a, you could put these on a chart, one being the vertical axis, one being the horizontal axis. We want both effective and efficient. And I think <laughs> when we went through COVID just now, we found out some of our supply chains weren't as effective as we hoped they would be. <laughs> Well, let's just because there was some problems. Let's let's talk about some of those problems and what the kind of characteristics of that really efficient supply chain that we all want to have an efficient supply chain, efficient sourcing strategies, but they don't always stand the test time. So talk about some of those efficient ones. Well, first of all, you have to be clear that efficient supply chains are particularly attractive to profit-making enterprises, right? So they want to drive costs as low as they possibly can without too much sacrificing on the service side of it, right? So this is where offshoring really got a lot of its momentum as early as the 70s. You know, you started seeing stuff going to Japan pretty quickly. We won't go there and talk about that, but it, the waves continued, right? So offshoring, put it into Mexico or over to China, really a big thing because the reality that you could get a lot lower cost or price with perceived level of quality being okay. And then what right alongside that came single sourcing. You know, one of the big things we were doing in the auto industry back in 1996 was target and cutting costing and supplier rationalization projects. Let's get from 2,000 suppliers for interiors at United Technologies Automotive down to 200. And yes, we get a lot of leverage. We can drive the very best price. We can put a lot of pressure on for co-design even and stuff like that, really beat on that price. And we built that low bidder mentality, right? We'd play these guys off against one another, just keep driving them down to what we needed. And we really focused in on the price or the cost. And I'll have to admit, without really thinking very carefully about the rest of the store, the total cost of ownership, right? Taking in everything to get it from China to here and all the things that come into play. And there was no kind of balanced scorecard at that time that probably came in in the 90s and 2000s where we started saying, I need to understand all the attributes of this. I need to understand the quality, total cost of ownerships, what is the cost of service. And so, as you said, I think you used the term brittle supply chains. That's what we had. When you focus only on efficiency, you end up with this brittle supply chain, which means when it needs to be able to bend, it breaks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and when it breaks, there's no toilet paper at your grocery store. <laughs> or when it breaks, we're just right now hearing about the semiconductor shortage. It's in the news all the time now. There's more to that story I want to touch on. <laughs> right. But I think what's interesting about all that is that we have to have efficiency. It's what we're all paid to do. Ron, I imagine half of the projects you've been on in the last 20 years or your guys have been on has been save me money, <laughs> make it go faster, make it better make it cheaper, right? But it can't be the only thing. Absolutely. So, you know, another aspect of the efficient supply chain is called just-in-time inventory. And that was really, you know, kind of pioneered in the automotive industry and that whole notion has taken effect. So, you know, driving those inventory policies, you know, pushing down to the suppliers, having to maintain inventory. Well, that's a great idea, but you're beating them to death on price at the same time. So how much inventory are they really going to hold in the buffers 
to protect you from a supply shock, right? It's probably not going to happen. So if we think about pre-COVID, you know, we had events like the tsunami in, in Japan that was very famous, right? It took out some factories that were the only factories in the world that made those kinds of products. This was several years ago now, but pretty good example. And then prior to that, we had oil shocks, right? There would be a, a war event, something would happen, we'd have worries about supply and prices would go out the roof, costs would get out of control. And There's always going to be another disruptive COVID or, as you said, a tsunami or a war or terrorist action. There's a million things that can go wrong, and we need those supply chains to be flexible. But if we fast forward to 2020 and the COVID pandemic, it kind of took a big jump, right? So things started happening that were really hadn't happened before. For example, Italy, they were the first epicenter for a major COVID outbreak, and they literally shut the country down with effectively no notice. Well, I personally know several companies that used Italian components in their product, and it was the only source in the world, and the country was closed for many, many weeks. And that phenomenon kind of rippled a little bit, right? It's other companies like Germany and some of the other countries, you know, Great Britain and so on. You know, there were waves of that going on. And then you had some real issues in, you know, the response to upside downside commitments. Like in the auto industry, when everything hit, the governor of the state of Michigan, I live in the state of Michigan. I love the state. And the governor says, we're going to shut down the entire automotive industry. You know, we're not going to let them produce cars. And it's what happens, right? So the auto suppliers are trying to send signals upstream to all of the microchip suppliers. And I think they want to make money, right? So rather than let all their capacity sit idle, they they kind of shifted gears and started directing all of the capacity to other products. Consumer goods didn't really see a big dip, right? Household appliances saw a lift in demand. And guess what they consume? Microchips. <laughs> so all this capacity started right going in that direction. And then, whoa, well, the auto industry is coming back a lot faster than we thought. So they tried to turn the spigot. What we had, I don't know if you ever heard of the beer game, and that's a kind of a famous simulation that's been used to demonstrate chaos, what happens in processes. But effectively, we created this massive whipsaw of demand signals going upstream of the supply chain. And between the U.S. and China, it's not like I picked up the phone or walked across the street, right? It's not like we had good communications, blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of things broke down. So that I mean, the auto industry uh, really manifests this whole microchip thing. And that rippling continues. For example, here's another example right here close at home. Michigan is home to lots of really cool microbreweries. Right. They had shipped kegs of product, beer, to all of these restaurants in the state of Michigan who were suddenly closed until further notice. Right. So now all of these kegs are coming back to them unopened. So what do we do? Well, consumption of beer out of bottles is going to go up dramatically. But guess what? There are no bottles available. All the capacity was bought out by the big players instantly. Now what? It's automotive and it's all the way down to your corner brew shop. Right, right. We're lucky we're in the United States and like most Western democracies, we have capitalism where we do, you know, the demand signals. Even now, though, it's as well connected as we are, we still have problems. And, you know, I say relative to 100 years ago, we don't really have problems. The last pandemic was much worse. I mean, every death is a painful, horrible thing, but we're a lot more effective and a lot more efficient than last go round. Anyway, switching gears from these brittle supply chains, which again, you said a lot of times they're focused so much on cost that they're maybe offshore way far away in China. Single source, low bidder, focus on price over everything else to some extent. 
really driving a lot of the cost and the challenges to the supply base. And these create sometimes really brittle supply chains that can't adapt. Now let's talk about an effective supply chain. And again, recognize effective means the ability to get to the desired result. Not necessarily always cheaper, but we want, we all want both, but sometimes you need effective, sometimes you need efficient, a lot of times you need a combination of both. So talk about the effective supply chain. Well, the effective supply chain has a different set of attributes than you would find in the efficient supply chain. And specifically, we go at it and we design it from the perspective of it needs to be highly adaptable. And what we mean by that is upside, downside risk and volume changes. And so actually it's a, it's a metric defined by the supply chain operations reference model. The supply chain, you know, upside and downside adaptability are two very important metrics. And it's how much change in volume can we do in the next 30 days without impacting cost and delivery commitments. So when you say it's so upside downside, that means if all your customers said, I need 20% more, you're like, I got that. And if they say I need 20% less, you go, yeah, I can adjust my volumes down, right? Without impacting uh, delivery performance or cost. So it's without pulling out the stops and retooling, putting up new factories, you know. So there's, there's a lot of magic in, you know, designing into your process that amount of flexibility. So in a lean manufacturing scenario, I would size my equipment to produce exactly what the forecast calls for. So I have no wasted resources. And that makes sense if the forecast is nice and stable. But guess what? That's not always the case, right? In fact, we've proven to be not the case for many, many industries. So there's that whole piece here around the upside, downside. Then there's responsiveness, how responsive you can be within a given signal interval. In other words, if volumes are going to change 50%, how long does it take for you to actually get to that 50% delta? You know, is it a week? Is it a month? Is it a year? And that degree of responsiveness has to be very carefully thought about when we're thinking about the effective supply chain. So I'll continue with this in a moment, but think about a continuum. On on one side, you've got a wall here that says, I want to be really, really efficient so I can be way over here with my strategy. I want to be way over here and be very, very effective vis-a-vis we need to have security for our country. And we are going to do whatever it takes to make sure our supply side will absolutely support us no matter what happens, you know, a war event, a pandemic event, a food shortage, you name it, something happens, we want to be able to respond to that. So the thinking is very different. The reality is for every single organization on the planet is it's a balance, right? You have to sit down and think very critically, you know, we need to make money, so we have to worry about efficiency, particularly for a profit-driven entity, right? But at the same time, we have to be effective. So we have social, environmental responsibilities come into play here. We've got our customers. How much is our brand image important to us, right? That has an effect on how effective we want to be versus efficient as well. So you've got that kind of into play. And then, you know, what, how about, uh, you know, response to node failures? What I mean by a node failure is the country of Italy just shut down. Until further notice, that's a node. So what's our ability to deal with that? Have we sole sourced everything and now we're dead? Or do we actually have two or three already in the pipeline go-tos so that we can shift our demand reasonably to make that happen, right? Are we perfect fulfillment capable? Well, that's on time, in full, at quality, with all the documentation, as promised. Well, you know, if you think about the pandemic, you know, and getting vaccines out, what could be more important than, you know, making promises? People's lives depend on us to execute. I think we want perfect fulfillment. 
and make that happen. So it's another metric, right, that we would, in best practices, we would apply. And how important is that to us defines on how rigorous we want to be on the design of the effectiveness of supply chain, which they're getting into buying consortiums, right? I'm a small fish in a bigger pond. I can team up with a bunch of companies. Together, we've got a lot more buying power. We can secure capacity and reduce our risk of disruption because together we can protect our demand, right? That's a best practice. So those are out there as part of that. I saw a really cool web conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, again, around this protecting the nation's security here in the United States. And I kind of like their little characterism that I borrowed. You know, Big E is effectiveness and little E is efficiency. And which do you really care about? I found that pretty interesting. Right. And it really does depend, as you said, it's context, right? So I uh, will only worry about effectiveness if you say, I can make it a little more efficient but effectiveness goes down a little bit. You go, no, I can't have that. I want all my focus on effectiveness. Now, that would be, again, on an airplane. Once I'm on an airplane, I don't want anybody getting efficient with air traffic controller time. Right? <laughs> don't worry about it. Just get me landed, right? But other things, the high volume parts that we're making, we have to both be effective and then we have to have that efficiency. Ron, you and I have spent probably our, most of our careers trying to drive more efficiency. And I don't think ever quality in automotive and everything else has gone way up, but so is efficiency. I mean, we got really tight on some stuff, maybe too tight because, again, it got some places, it got a little brittle. I'm an optimist. I want effective and I want efficient. So how do you go about getting a sourcing strategy and then a supply chain that gives me both? For U.S. companies in particular, I'm kind of focusing on that. And anybody, that any, or any organization, any country does lots of offshoring. You know, you've got to stop and think about reshoring. So here in the United States, some of that's being driven by a government. For example, uh, lithium-ion batteries are now going to be integrated into a lot of the future technologies used by the government. Well, at the moment, the only place you can buy those packs is China. Right. You know, it's interesting, Ron. I know this enters into it. If I was to say I wanted to open, say, that kind of factory, a lot of times those have an environmental impact. And it's been in the past easier to say, we'll do it in China, and maybe they're more interested in that growth. And as opposed to here, where you say, hey, I'd like to open a huge factory in your backyard here. We're going to do the best we can, but it's an environmentally intensive business. Easier to move it to China. Easier to move it somewhere else. That's not going to be the case forever, though. We're going to have to figure out how do we manage these environmental impacts. And again, what we learned also is when China shut down, they had certain products that we needed that we could no longer get. I told you offline, my daughter's a procurement person. She works at a vaccine company. And she said, I had no idea how much of my PPE, my personal protection equipment, was made in Wuhan, China. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. She said, I buy it through distributors. And they don't say, hey, all of our stuff is made in Wuhan. She said, surprise. Yeah, that's what they found out. Very difficult to get that stuff. So getting back to this whole thing, I mean, reshoring isn't just being talked about today. This started more than a year ago when people went, uh-oh. So there's a lot of reshoring activity, thinking, examinations going on. And uh, one of my partners, actually, and he's involved with a company in Mexico, this organization, and they came together and, and lined up several million square feet of factory space that's empty today. And they're offering this deal. I'm going to learn more about it. So you can check with me on the rest of the details later. But, but effectively, they would move the product from China into Mexico so that it's now at least near short, and they would take care of labor, union issues, taxation, utilities, permitting, 
inbound logistics, all of that. The only thing they probably can't do for you is make the product. In other words, there may be some lost art here with respect to how we actually make the product. And I'll talk more about that here in a minute. But that's really coming in on it. So for organizations that are thinking about, well, if I can at least nearshore, think about who can we tap into to help us do that. If you don't do that every day or don't do that kind of thing a lot, there are a lot of pitfalls and traps you can fall into in your nearshoring or reshoring strategy that you don't want to get caught up in that, which brings me to that lost art thing. And you'll think about the organizations that started outsourcing, pick up their equipment, ship it to a partner in China, and they're going to produce everything we're going to use coming off that equipment. Well, that was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So now you're going to bring it back and make it nearshore. So who do you have that actually knows how to make that? I think they're all retired. We're in a different career now. There's a massive knowledge gap around how do we actually make this stuff. Oh, absolutely. There is. And it's interesting. You and I are old enough to remember this. At one time when we were young, stuff that got outsourced to Japan, people would go, oh, it's inferior quality made in Japan. If you saw made in Japan on the back of something, you knew it was cheap. That all changed. They got very, very good. I mean, exceptionally good at quality. And then a lot of it moved over to China. And for a long time, you go, oh, made in China. That meant cheap. That meant outsourced. And that's not the case anymore. They've had a generation to fix the quality issues. I spent a lot of time in the 90s in China, and there was definitely some issues with quality. But, I mean, the best organizations over there are absolutely world-class and just like they are here. So, you know, what's also interesting, Ryan, and this is a whole other subject, may I'll come bug you later on this one, but... When we talk about manufacturing overall, you always hear the government, it's the kind of a fetish for them. They always say, we need more good manufacturing jobs. I want, I want a whole bunch of people making a lot of money in factories. Factory jobs are going down. Manufacturing jobs are going down here, but they're also going down in China. It's because we're getting more automation. And I always say this on my podcast, it's just a matter of time before, if I'm using automation to do a product, it doesn't have to be in China because I'm not getting a better price for manpower. Automation doesn't care where it lives. <laughs> so that's another thing that we need to consider about what technology and automation will make it easier to say, I can nearshore that. I can bring it home. And I've used the example here before about the frying pan. Frying pans moved overseas. It used to be 100 people in those factories. Now, if you bring them back, it's 10 people in those factories. So Ron, Summarize this topic for me. Well, you know, that really leads us into sourcing strategies. We already kind of talked about this reshoring phenomena, nearshoring, reshoring, all of that. But really going along with that, there's four things you have to really, really think about and bear down on that. And first is, if, if we're going to do that, we have to, right? Maybe it's time to step back a second here and make sure we really understand voice of customer, voice of market, and that is we're going to redesign our execution and supply chain, which could mean redesigning products, services, the whole nine yards, because you change the world. If it's a thousand miles away or 500 miles away or five miles away versus 15,000, that's a big difference. So there's that aspect. The second aspect is, well, wait a minute, what about, you know, how do we get better at designing those products and services so that it's easy to onshore them, reshore them, and gain efficiencies and flexibility adaptability at the same time, right, and designing in the flexibility, I'm actually doing consult with a major university about that next week, that whole notion of how all that engineering affects vertical supply chain integration. And then the third aspect is, what's the metadata? What is the data, the analytics? What do you need 
being informed by voice of customer, being informed by design intent, that's both product and execution for supply. Okay, so what's the data and the information that we need to have at our disposal? I'll call it commodity sourcing strategies or category sourcing strategies. And then finally, you got to develop your plan for how we're going to manage those categories of spend in the future. And warning, you might have five categories and they'll need five different plans. It's not the same plan for every category of your spend because there's different attributes to that. So just as a, as a sidebar, I actually am executive advisor for the Next Level Purchasing Association now for a couple of years, and I uh, organized the webinar. So our April 15th webinar coming up, uh, we have four panelists who are going to actually treat each of those topics. Uh, Blake Matthews, one of the master instructors at LPA, kind of talking about that voice of customer thing. We have Wayne Fisher, who is associated with the Product Development Management Association, really getting at thinking carefully about industry agnostic considerations around design of product service to ease supply design. And then Dr. Lionel Wright, Lionel Wright, I should say, really talking about master data management and what it is really need to be designing into the future so that we have the right decision support for category management. And then have Mike Jewell, who is the senior manager of procurement for a nursery, and kind of give us a real-life example of how does all that cascade down to a really live, vibrant, how do we actually do that? And that's coming up on April 15th. If you Google Next Level Purchasing Association, go out to webinars, you should be able to register. Ryan, if you send me a link, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll do that. Good stuff. I mean, I think it's such an important topic. And again, I think all of us are kind of going back to the drawing board right now, looking at our sourcing strategy, looking at our supply chains and saying, how do we make sure we get better? Really, when the overall scheme of things around, we did pretty well during this, it seems like COVID's ending or coming to an end. We've done pretty well. We're all living indoors and eating every day. In fact, some of us eating too much. We've done well, but we always want to do better. So you have to weigh these two factors. How effective do I need to be? How efficient do I need to be? Good stuff. So before you go, tell us what's going on over at MetaOps. Tell us who you serve. Tell us how we can reach you, all that good stuff. Okay, well, I can be reached at MetaOps. My email is rcrabtree at metaops.com. You know, several million people have my email address. So you can find it on our website as well. Including me. <laughs> yep, and in my LinkedIn profile, I've got some cool little, uh, you know, YouTube type videos and what have you. And we were featured as a cover story in Manufacturing Technology Insights magazine back in December. I was interviewed with Thought Leadership Leverage first week of February around talent, interim talent, and what are the gaps from a talent perspective. So going back to, I was talking about that Mexico, right? They got millions of square feet. They can bring your equipment back to the U.S., and where do you find the people that actually know how to make the product? Well, that's where we come in. I can help you with those logistics, guys. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, Joe is actually a contextual example of what we call a meta expert, where I had a large multi-billion dollar client really struggling with, you know, what to do for their southbound spend on freight. So, you know, Joe came in on an incremental basis just to help provide some thought leadership, help them. And that just led to, okay, Joe can help us manage this new 3PL arrangement. And Joe ended up on a part-time basis supporting them over some period of time and saving them millions and millions of dollars in the process. <laughs> I think, Ryan, you told me it'd be like a month and then it ended up being three years. Not full-time, but it was, it was great. I really enjoyed working at MetaOps and working with the team. Ron's got all sorts of good work, but I chimed in, Ron, finish who you guys serve and what you do. Quite all right. So our niche is providing super talented people, call them thought leaders, if you will, people that can step in and just get stuff done, right? Have the expertise in your industry, the technical expertise, the background, program management, quality, supply chain, operations, logistics, and the like. And they're kind of plug and play. So it's 
kind of an anti-consulting model, right? Yes, we have a massive knowledge base of training, you know, case studies, et cetera, that our customers tap into. We partner from a strategic perspective around what it is you're trying to accomplish and then support you with executive level support. And, you know, we put together little SWAT teams of thought leaders to help solve really difficult problems. So that's what we do. We do that, of course, for corporations, private equity-owned companies, and then we do partner with some very, very cool specialty consulting firms, um, software services firms, business service providers that call on us for talent. And frankly, I'll pull them through when my customer has a problem. If they need a specific niche solution, they'll do that. So by the way, I've got Joe on speed dial whenever I get a question about logistics. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Ron, thank you so much. This was great. It's such an important topic and uh, you're just the guy to talk to about it. And I'll put all those nice links in the show notes so everyone can reach out to you or to Next Level Purchasing Association too. Thank you. Thank you to all the listeners, too. Your support's very much appreciated. Till next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com.